a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a first-time wrong thinker, I especially uh, applaud you for finding the courage to step outside of the boundaries of approved opinion. Tom Woods, I think, was the one who coined that phrase, and it is so descriptive of the times that we live in where there's a little three-by-five index card of opinions that you're allowed to discuss and, and of things that you're allowed to question, but to everything else, well, that's off limits. And Well, you'll know when you've strayed outside the boundaries of approved opinion because that's when you're going to be labeled as, uh, I guess they're going to call you a conspiracy theorist. It's supposed to shut down, you know, any discussion, shut down any dissent. Well, now, we can't have conspiracy theorists out there just, you know, talking about whatever. And Anyway, you get the picture. I'm glad you're here, though. I've got some fun stuff to share with you today. Uh, in fact, I wanted to, to share, this was a line that a friend sent me, Tyler sent me this yesterday. He said, what do you think of this? Pull yourself out of ignorance. He says, that sounds like a good tagline or motto for someone's radio show. Now, I don't know what I'd be appropriating if I were to do it. I don't know, but I, I think it's worth passing on. That's the goal here. We're all trying to pull ourselves out of ignorance. And look, it doesn't help if we put, I'm not ignorant. I've never been ignorant in my life. Nonsense. We all have been ignorant, and we all are ignorant to some extent. And the beginning of wisdom is admitting, okay, I don't know the answer to that question. Or I don't know much about a particular situation. That's when you start to grow. And, and it's, it's ironic that the more you learn, the more you, the more you recognize uh, just how little you do actually know. There's, there's humility that comes with admitting one's ignorance. So that's uh, that's where I'm coming from. Not here to not here to, you know, otherwise answer all your problems in the world and make sure that we have time for commercials and you know we're gonna be done here in just a few minutes. But I'm here to encourage you if you are on the path of questioning the official narrative, if you are on the path of seeking truth, even if it makes you uncomfortable, especially when it makes you uncomfortable, you're doing the right thing. And this is what the world needs right now because there is so much misinformation out there. So, where to begin? How about, uh, first of all, I'll, I'll just get a couple things off my chest. No, I did not watch the State of the Union address. And uh, number one, I had other obligations, but even if I didn't, if I had nothing to do with my time, I wouldn't have spent time watching it. And it's because I kind of have this visceral dislike and distaste for politics, especially the Washington, D.C. brand passion play politics that seem to be, you know, on display 24-7. And it seems like the pinnacle of that, the, the, the great moment that they all like to get in front of the camera and perform, and I'm talking all politicians, it's the State of the Union address. It's, it's staged for it. And it's treated as if, oh, this is something of great substance and why we may learn something that we never knew before. We may learn things that will, will just absolutely rock our worlds, but it's a performance. Now, having said that, I've also seen a few clips. I've been on Twitter already, and I've you know, seen a few clips, and my goodness, that Joe Biden is one angry fellow. <laughs> He's shouting so much. And it was kind of crazy to see that, at least in a couple of places, it appears there was response 
from the audience. In fact, it was almost reminiscent of uh, a British uh, parliamentary, you know, moment. I, I guess there's there's a time when the prime ministers can can ask questions, and you hear shouting, and you hear responses, and boos, and and things like that. It was kind of raucous. But as far as did we learn anything new? No, a politician stood up and took credit for anything in the world that was good, including the sun rising in the morning. And, uh, of course, blamed anything negative that was going on on his opponents, either standing in the way of progress or just, you know, trying to destroy the world. So I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. I knew what the performance was going to be. It's a very predictable plot. Makes the Dukes of Hazard look like a like a M Night Shyamalan movie, you know, in terms of whoa, I didn't see that coming. They got in a car chase. Did you know that was going to happen? Holy cow! Anyway, so sarcasm off. Nope, didn't have much time for that. Um, I, I've had a little bit of discussion with with a few people over the last few days about the uh, the Grammys, and you know, this I don't want to make it sound like I'm just here to to bag on popular culture, but I am going to make this observation. In fact, I'm actually going to include a link to Sasha Stone's take on the Grammys. It's called Caligula at the Grammys. And if you're not familiar with who Caligula was, this is probably worth your time. It's a fairly lengthy post, but she is very thorough, and I think she makes a very convincing case. This is what a society in decline looks like. The kind of things that you saw on display, the things that are being celebrated, the things that are being trumpeted is, look at this, look at how wonderful we are. Those are the things that tend to emerge in societies that, that are reaching their, their terminal pop-up maneuver, you know, where before they nosedive into the ground. And we are headed that direction as a society. I'm sorry if that sounds fatalistic. It's happened before. It's happened to other societies. It's, we've even seen it to a small degree here. And I'm just, I'll give you the example, you know, the Roaring Twenties were a great time. There was a lot of, uh, you know, pushing of the envelope. There was a fair amount of debauchery. Uh, Germany probably took it further than most. And boy, when they, uh, when they nosedived, how far did they nosedive? But before they nosedived, wow. What did their society accomplish? I mean, they, re- they, were, they were in many ways leading out in terms of technology, in terms of just modern society, their auto bonds set the stage for what we see today as, you know, modern highway systems and so forth. They had a lot going for them, but they turned loose of their their moral foundations. Possibly one of the most highly educated societies. In fact, I'll just say, they were among the most highly educated societies in the world at that time. Germany was. Weimar Republic Germany. But they got divorced from reality. They turned loose of their moral compasses. We don't need these anymore. Will to power will carry us forward into the future. And then one day, out of nowhere, Hitler came into power. And he did not lead them to a good place. I know this makes people uncomfortable. Ah, Godwin's law, Brian invoked Hitler. He thinks that the people leading us are like Hitler. No, I'm not, I'm not saying they're, you know, carbon copy, cut and paste. Oh, yep, sure enough, there's Hitler and goose stepping around here. Nope. It's the idea that you can turn loose of your moral foundations or you can cut yourself, you know, away from those moral anchors that keep a society, you know, based in reality and somehow, you know, escape the consequences. It doesn't happen. And all I'm trying to point out here, as many other people have pointed out, is we are following a very similar trajectory. 
And some people are going to be very surprised when it all comes apart around them. And, you know, I'm not going to be one of those people who's going to be surprised. I've, I've seen it coming for some time. I'm grateful for those voices that have uh, pointed out, hey, folks, you may not want to get too tangled up in this because uh, this ship is going down. They're talking about societal decline. In fact, this is really a good time, if I can just be bold about it, to think about what ways can I separate myself from society so I don't get tangled in all the intrigue that's going on and get dragged down when this thing goes gurgling to the bottom of the ocean. You really need to be thinking about this kind of stuff because it's it's getting more intense. It's not your imagination. And the stuff that was on display at the Grammys is not, it's not uh, indicative of a healthy, growing society that's in its ascendancy and that is, you know, getting ready to do great things. It's the sign of a society that has lost its bearings and has lost its uh, grip on reality and is circling the drain. And again, it's happened before. And in every case, there were people who were prepared to build what comes next. And I think that's where people like you and I come in. It's not that we're better than everybody else. It's more like a matter of some people were paying attention. Some people listened when voices of warning were raised. I think we need to be those people. And so to the best of my ability, I'm trying to be a voice of warning without being just a voice of alarm. Ah, look out, the sky's falling. Yeah, I get it. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. But you've got to check out Sasha Stone's take on Caligula at the Grammys. Holy cow. Again, I, I, think, I think the most decadent aspects of the Roman Empire, people who inhabited that time are looking from the great beyond going, Wow. These guys are nuts looking at us and the things that, that we're willing to embrace. It's kind of exciting on the one hand. I mean, nobody can make the claim, well, you know, nothing really interesting ever happened during my lifetime. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost getting a little too interesting for comfort. So when we come back, got a few other things here to talk about. In fact, I'm going to share with you an article that Dan Sanchez posted. It's actually from a speech by Henry Hazlitt. Yeah, the guy who wrote Economics in One Lesson. The Times call for courage, truth-telling, and hard work. I would say we live in those times. And I'm going to go further and suggest that you and I have a duty to step up and be truth-tellers and hard workers and examples of personal courage. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Let's talk about the, the Times Call for Courage. Again, this was shared by Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. If you aren't making regular visits to their website, fee.org, you are missing out on a marvelous opportunity to bolster your understanding of the world and to read some of the best writers that you're going to encounter. I consider fee to be one of my essential resources for wrong thinkers just because they have so many different contributors, but they're all very based in solid principle and in the principles and practices of free market economics and liberty. They really have a great, uh, a great take on what's happening. So Henry Hazlitt, 
This is a speech that uh, was was given uh, back in 1964 at his 70th birthday celebration. So this is just an excerpt from remarks that he made. The times call for courage. Hazlitt asked, why are we drifting deeper and deeper into socialism and the dark night of totalitarianism? This was this was 60 some years ago that he was talking about this. Isn't that interesting? We haven't stopped that drift. He asks, why have those of us who believe in human liberty been so ineffective? And then he says, I'm going to give what is no doubt a terribly oversimplified answer to that question. In the first place, we're almost hopelessly outnumbered. Our voices are simply drowned out in the general tumult and clamor. But there's another reason, and this is hard to say, above all to an audience of this sort, which contains some of the most brilliant writers and minds in the fields of economics, of jurisprudence, of politics, not only of this age, but of any age. But he says the hard thing must be said that collectively, we just haven't been good enough. We haven't convinced the majority. Now, is this because the majority won't, just won't listen to reason? Henry Hazlitt says, I'm enough of an optimist and I have enough faith in human nature to believe that people will listen to reason if they are convinced that it is reason. Somewhere there must be some missing argument, something we haven't seen clearly enough or said clearly enough or perhaps just not said often enough. He says, a minority is in a very awkward position. The individuals in it can't afford to be just as good as the individuals in the majority. If they hope to convert the majority, they have to be much better. And the smaller the minority, the better they have to be. They have to think better. They have to know more. They have to write better. They have to have better controversial manners. But he says, above all, they have to have far more courage. And they have to be infinitely patient. Henry Hazlitt says, when I look back on my own career... I can find plenty of reasons for discouragement, personal discouragement. I have not lacked industry. I've written a dozen books for most of 50 years from the age of 20. I've been writing practically every day, news items, editorials, columns, articles. I figure I must have written some 10,000 editorials, articles, and columns, some 10 million words, and in print. The verbal equivalent of about uh, 150 average-length books. And yet, what have I accomplished? He says, I'll confess, is in the confidence of these four walls, that I have sometimes repeated myself. In fact, there may be some people unkind enough to say I haven't been saying anything new for 50 years. And in a sense, they would be right. I have been preaching essentially the same thing. I've been preaching liberty against coercion. I've been preaching capitalism against, as, as against socialism. And I've been preaching this doctrine in every form and with any excuse. And yet the world is enormously more socialized than when I began. There's a character in Stern or Smollett, or was it Uncle Toby? Anyway, he used to get angry at politics, and every year he found himself getting angrier and angrier, and politics getting no better. Henry Hazlitt says, well, every year I find myself getting angrier and angrier, and politics getting worse and worse. But he says, I don't know that I ought to brag about my own ineffectiveness, because I'm in very good company. Eugene Lyons has been devoting his life to writing brilliantly and persistently against communism, he now even has the tremendous circulation of the Reader's Digest behind him. And yet at the end of all these years that he's been writing, communism is stronger and covers enormously more territory than when he started. And Max Eastman has been at this longer than any of the rest of us. And he's been writing a poetic and powerful prose and throwing his tremendous eloquence into the cause. And yet he's been just as ineffective as the rest of us, 
so far as the political consequences are concerned. Yet he says, in spite of this, I am hopeful. After all, I'm still in good health. I'm still free to write. I'm still free to write unpopular opinions, and I'm keeping at it. And so are many of you. But he says, I bring you this message. Be of good heart. Be of good spirit. If the battle is not yet won, it is not yet lost either. Henry Hazlitt says, I suppose most of you in this room have read that powerful book, George Orwell's 1984. On the surface, it is a profoundly depressing novel. But I was surprised to find myself strangely encouraged by it. He says, I finally decided that this encouragement arose from one of the final scenes in it. The hero, Winston Smith, is presented as a rather ordinary man, an intelligent but not brilliant man, and certainly not a courageous one. Winston Smith has been keeping a secret diary, in which he wrote, Freedom is the freedom to say that two and two makes four. Now this, desi- this diary has been discovered by the party. O'Brien, his inquisitor, is asking him questions. Winston Smith is strapped to a board or wheel in such a way that O'Brien, by merely moving a lever, can inflict any amount of excruciating pain upon him and explains to him just how much pain he can inflict upon him and just how easy it would be to break Smith's backbone. O'Brien first inflicts a certain amount of not-quite-intolerable pain on Winston Smith. Then he holds up the four fingers of his left hand and says, How many fingers am I holding up? Winston knows that the required answer is five. That's the party answer. But Winston can't say anything else but four. So O'Brien moves the lever again and inflicts more agonizing pain upon him and says, Think again, how many fingers am I holding up? Winston Smith says, four, four, four fingers. Well, finally, he capitulates, as you know, but not until he's put up a magnificent battle. Now, Hazlitt says, none of us is yet on the torture rack. We're not yet in jail. We're getting harassments and annoyances, but what we mainly risk is merely our popularity, the danger that we'll be called nasty names. So before we're in the position of Winston Smith, we can surely have enough courage to keep saying that two plus two equals four. This is the duty that is laid upon us. We have a duty to speak even more clearly and courageously, to work harder, and to keep fighting this battle while the strength is still in us. But he says, I can't do better than to read the words of the great economist, the great thinker, the great writer who honors me more than I can say by his presence here tonight, Ludwig von Mises. This is what he wrote in the final paragraph of his great book on socialism 40 years ago. Quote, everyone carries a part of society on his shoulders. No one is relieved of his share of responsibility by others. And no one can find a safe way out for himself if society is sweeping towards destruction. Therefore, everyone in his own interests must thrust himself vigorously into the intellectual battle. None can stand aside with unconcern. The interests of everyone hang on the result, whether he chooses or not. Every man is drawn into the great historical struggle the decisive battle into which our epoch has plunged us, end quote. Hazlitt says those words, uncannily prophetic words, were written in the early 1920s. Well, he says, I haven't any new message, any better message than that. Even those of us who have reached and passed our 70th birthdays cannot afford to rest on our oars and spend the rest of our time, or rest of our lives rather, dozing in the Florida sun. The times call for courage. The times call for hard work. But if the demands are high, it is because the stakes are even higher. 
They are nothing less than the future of human liberty, which means the future of civilization. Isn't it crazy? You know, this is a speech he gave 60-some years ago, almost 60 years ago. And yet, uh, here he's quoting Ludwig von Mises from 100 years ago. Powerful stuff. It just shows you there are truths that stand the test of time. One of those truths being we need courage. We need people who are willing to do the hard work of standing up for what is right, for what is true. And no matter how much coercion, no matter how much pain is being inflicted on them, refuse to admit that two and two equal anything other than four. I think you're one of those people, and I'm grateful that you are. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Let me give a quick shout out here to my sponsors. They include MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMC, I'm sorry, let me try that again, TCMP Nation. That's the Modern Conservative Podcast.com. I hope that you'll uh, check it out for yourself. And uh, I've got links in my show notes at the BrianHydeShow.com. By the way, if you want to find article, the links to the articles that I discuss on here, as well as the guests that I have on this show, yes, those are in the show notes as well. It costs you absolutely nothing to subscribe. I just need your email, and I will not spam you. I will not share your email with anybody else. You're not going to be getting bombarded by a bunch of offers you just can't refuse. So with that in mind, I want to continue on this idea of why we need to be courageous, why we need to be committed, and not just sit back and, well, I've got, you know, front row seats to watching a society in decline. I guess I'll pop some popcorn and enjoy the show. I mean, there's, look, I've, I have run the whole gamut of emotions here in recognizing, that, okay, we are really in trouble, and there really is you know, decline that's taking place. And there were, my first reaction long ago was, you know what I need to do? I need to just separate myself from society. And I mean, get out of there and find a, you know, a quiet place somewhere far from anywhere, you know, at least 40 miles off the nearest highway. And uh, just basically set up a nice solitary existence, homestead, and let the world just go to hell in a handbasket without me. And you have to admit, there's times where it's like, you, you watch some of the, the, the stuff that's going on, you know, the, the rioting and looting and just craziness that happens, particularly in population centers. I can understand why people would want to do that. But I've also come to understand that if, if you are here to make a difference, and I believe that each one of us is, is here for that purpose, you're not going to make that difference hiding out in a cave somewhere. You can't be a hermit and accomplish what God would have you accomplish, what God's given you the tools to accomplish if you just pick them up, develop them, and use them. And so that's why we have to be willing to engage. We have to be willing to be uh, where people are. We have to be willing to speak up and risk, you know, catching the wrath of the woke mob. In fact, you know, the, the modern version of labeling someone as a heretic is to call them a denier. I've got a great article here from Thomas Buckley. This was published on the Brownstone Institute's website, brownstone.org. Denialism, a woke way to stifle dissent. Thomas Buckley says, as with misinformation, 
Labeling someone who disagrees with the current standard think as a denier has become, pardon the term, endemic among the woke. COVID denier, climate denier, election denier, science denier. All are bandied about to immediately end debate, tar any difference of opinion as literally insane, and depict anyone who ever disagrees with you as stupid and evil. He says this epithet is now being used preemptively to make sure that no matter what, anyone who now or ever questions the move to ban gas stoves will not be doing so based on facts or logic, but because of their, but instead because of their gas stove denialism. Now, Thomas Buckley says, like so much woke terminology, the meaning of the term, the initial meaning, is far removed from its current usage, though it has the distinct advantage of being generally familiar, allowing it to be Trojan horsed, admittedly uh, summarized, sweet, generous into public discourse. Common usage, rather, of the term in denial, besides the joke about the river in Egypt, seems to come to the fore mostly in regards to an inability to face up to an obvious, almost always, personal truth. So, in denial about your drinking, in denial about the fact that your kids are actually monsters, in denial about your sexuality, nothing to do with today's gender palooza, and on and on. But he says, like in almost every case in which the woke have stolen a term from the self-help therapy movements, the term has been utterly bastardized. For example, trigger and safe space are now used the opposite way of their original intent. And he actually links to, to show you how that is, how that works out. All of these terms started as ways to focus on personal responsibilities and actions and not in any way, shape, or form carried societal baggage and or implications. And then in the 1980s, there was a shift, though a rather understandable one. There are those who sadly and stupidly deny that the Holocaust happened, that Hitler didn't kill millions of Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and the disabled and political opponents, and, well, it's, it's a very long and terrible list. Hence the term Holocaust denier, an accurate and correct description of someone who, despite the overwhelming physical evidence of the event, denies its occurrence, almost always occurs, or almost always because of their personal uh, political ideology. Now, he says it's crucial to emphasize that denying the Holocaust happened is extremely different from the current crop of dissent-crushing denials. The former involves a very specific, proven fact. The latter, we're talking things like climate, election, and so forth, all involve differences of opinion and reasonable and appropriate debates over whether something did or is going to happen. But he says the appropriately fetid stench attached to Holocaust denier intentionally and destructively is made to come along with all the current denials. In other words, if you are an election denier or a climate denier, you are just as terrible as a Holocaust denier, even though nothing could be further from the truth. If used in its initial meaning, a climate denier would be one who claims the climate doesn't exist. An election denier would be a person who says the 2020 election never happened. And no, that's not what's being claimed. The debate over climate change is one that should be taken seriously and done impartially. The discussion around the glaring voter secure, voting security issues that appeared in 2020 should be considered similarly. The science denier epithet attached to anyone who wondered about the risk and efficacy of the COVID vaccines is especially egregious because science cannot by definition be believed or denied. While technically a noun, it is in fact a verb 
It is a process, and one cannot follow the science, just as one cannot follow a car one is driving. Climate denier denialism implies ostrich-like stupidity. How can a person possibly disagree with the fact that we're all either going to drown or burn or freeze or dehydrate or starve or flood or desert or disease or war ourselves to death in the next few decades unless we do something now? Never mind that doing most of the things proposed now are unnecessary, contradictory, contraindicated, and could end modern civilization as we know it. And that considering the utterly scientifically shoddy, if not outright fraudulent actions many in the climate brigade have taken, should not even be included in any rational discussion of the topic. And the same is true with the election denier. The 2020 election was quite possibly the most unusual election in the nation's history. Barriers put in place years ago to try to ensure and secure to ensure secure uh, accurate voting were obliterated. Massive numbers of ballots were mailed out practically willy-nilly. The unconscionable practice of ballot harvesting was normalized in many states. Counts were stopped and started and dragged on for days and on and on. Just these undisputed facts alone are enough for intelligent, reasonable, involved citizens to legitimately wonder if the election was truly fair and honest. And it should be noted that in all three cases, climate, election, and science, that those who toss the denier term about are also those same people who ignore, denigrate, and outright block any attempt to actually figure out what exactly happened. So remember, if you can evade any impartial investigation, you can declare with confidence no investigation ever found fault with your claims of final and definitive and certain truth of your position. Boy, is that true. Now, he says there are people who benefit from advertising denialism. From the recent private jet and meat and booze and hooker and billionaire-fueled Davos event to legacy media desperate to keep its subscribers terrified and therefore more likely to continue to subscribe to the tastefully decorated hallways and boardrooms of massive financial institutions and international foundations and agencies and organizations to academics desperate to secure grant funding and make a name for themselves to tech giants who wish everyone lived by their algorithms because that would make selling ads so much easier to people who yearn for the psychological comfort of social acceptance and the feeling of being right all the time. These are the people that benefit every time someone outside their circle is called a denier. So in the end, Thomas Buckley says, for the truth to prevail, denialism must be denied its power to stifle dissent, obfuscate facts, and intellectually segregate those with other opinions, those with legitimate opinions, those who are not in denial of reality. That's brilliant. Very good stuff. Thomas Buckley, by the way, uh, actually has a substack that you might consider uh, looking at and subscribing to. You know, I'm assuming that everybody has a similar commitment to, uh, you know, I'm going to figure out, I'm going to find the truth, or I'm going to find the best sources of information that I can, that, that I have. And it is sometimes a little bit of an obsessive thing, and I have to be careful that sometimes I don't, uh, you know, plunge down the rabbit hole and find myself, you know, just endlessly. That's all I'm doing is, you know, scrolling around online and trying to find, you know, more interesting content and, you know, things that shed light on the world around me. Don't forget to take a break every so often. Don't forget to unplug and acknowledge the reality that's right there in front of your face. It could be something as simple as a sunset. It could be spending time with loved ones or playing with your pet. But it's good to know what the truth is, isn't it? 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know that uh, economically we've got some uh, got some pretty interesting things shaping up, and I I don't say this to scare people. In fact, I don't even want to scare myself. But it appears that uh, we are looking at some economic upheaval that could very much rival and even dwarf the Great Depression. And it's because the stakes are very high. The amount of debt right now it's almost incomprehensible. We hear the talk of ah, it's trillions, this trillions, that. And we try to get our minds around it, but it, when you start to see, you know, illustrations, okay, this is what a trillion dollars would look like. It's off the charts. It's it's the kind of debt that, that makes you wonder, how could, how could this be built up like this? How could it uh, grow so quickly? And more importantly, who's ever going to be able to pay it off? My point is just simply, there is a correction coming. And so it's, it's good to, to understand you know, the reality that corrections do happen. And if you really want to understand the reality, for instance, of, the, say, the Great Depression, it's kind of helpful to look at how the nation struggled to feed itself. Robert E. Wright has a terrific piece. This is on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org, The Not-So-Great Depression Diet. Some great history here, too. Robert E. Wright says, When E.C. Harwood formed the American Institute for Economic Research 90 years ago, the New Deal was just beginning. The Great Depression, though, was over three years old, and it was a hangry, troublesome toddler. For those with a job or on a fixed income, the Depression was great because prices sank a great deal. Unlike today, real wages, or in other words, wages adjusted for the declining price level, remained high for many. For the one in four to one in three workers without a job, though, the Depression meant lean times. Few resorted to eating insects, which were so thick at times the Colorado National Guard in 1937 used flamethrowers to kill them, but tellingly not to roast them for dinner. An adult consumption of human breast milk was largely a fictional device used at the end of the Grapes of Wrath. There was, however, genuine dietary privation, especially after the federal government began deliberately destroying food in an effort to raise prices. You thought we had it bad. He says everyone's familiar with the iconic images of those with no better alternative waiting in line for a bowl of thin soup and old bread. Many tend to think of such meals as coming from the state, but in fact much of it came from private charities, especially in places like New England with hoary and robust nonprofit networks. Indeed, most of the response to the food shortages was intensely private. Families facing budget deficits, temporized or in the parlance of the day, made do. That meant paying bills late or not at all, patching worn clothes instead of buying new ones, and changing their diets. Now, he says some of the dietary changes were unhealthy. Richard Willis, for example, tells of eating lard sandwiches while growing up on a farm in Depression-era Iowa. Robert says other kids, like me, albeit 40 years later, during another horrific government-caused economic snafu called the Great Inflation, scarfed down cheese dreams. Cheap cheese sandwiches grilled to disguise the moldiness of the bread. Many Depression-era Americans increased their consumption of wild edibles during periods of unemployment. In South Dakota, for example, pheasants grew plentiful in the fallow fields and were easily picked off from the porch or roadside. 
Connecticuters and upstate New Yorkers chowed down on squirrels, rabbits, and even, I kid you not, skunks. Fish were plentiful in many areas, and even if from polluted waters, were better than nothing. Wild berries, apples, and other delectables too small to bother gathering during the Roaring Twenties were well worth the trouble when there was nothing else to do but go hungry. Depression-era Americans also started or enlarged home gardens and holdings of domesticated chickens, rabbits, turkeys, and waterfowl. Home canning products experienced a resurgence as people preserved their summer bounty and fall harvest for consumption over the winter. A typical Depression-era breakfast consisted of a piece of seasonal fruit, milk and cereal, and eggs or toast with butter. The noon meal was usually a sandwich with salad or some soup. Dinner was meat and veggies, followed by dessert. And what varied between households and over time was the quantity and quality of each of those courses, especially the dinner meat entree. Many Depression-era recipes disseminated via newspaper, radio, or free, meaning corporate-sponsored pamphlets, were implicitly designed to help food preparers to stretch limited supplies and spice up a monotonous menu without breaking the bank, so to speak. The free pamphlets were especially useful because once the recipes in it were copied or memorized, well, they helped to save on toilet paper costs, too. Eleanor, the president or the wife rather, of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, urged women in her 1933 book, It's Up to the Women, to engage in thrifty cooking and housekeeping. Now, as usual, the government was already behind the curve as The Joy of Cooking, published in 1931, and other popular cookbooks had already entered the market, while radio shows like The Mystery Chef provided the latest and greatest cheap culinary ideas that trickled down from people with the working radio to those without. Overall, simple meals like spaghetti and mystery meatballs gained in popularity at the expense of more costly or harder-to-find specialty in ethnic foods. Now, many cheap foods still common among the poor today made their debut during the Depression. And we're talking things like Wonder Bread, Bisquick, Miracle Whip and Campbell's Cream of Mushroom Soup, Ragu Spaghetti Sauce, Kraft Mac and Cheese, and Hormel Spam all appeared during the Roosevelt Recession in 1937. When King George VI visited America in 1939, the infamously stingy FDR served him another poor man's specialty, the hot dog which, despite its name, included actual canine only in some Asian and American Indian contexts. Spam and hot dogs at least tasted better than lard sandwiches. Robert E. Wright says the Depression also changed the way Americans shopped. It was during the Depression that the old-style so store, where clerks dispensed good to customers over the counter, began to lose significant market share to less expensive warehouse food stores where customers retrieved items themselves, the precursor to the modern grocery store. What the warehouse stores lost in pilferage and spillage, they made up for with lower labor costs and higher sales of impulsively purchased junk food, many examples of which including Twinkies. Did you know they go back to 1930? I didn't. Fritos corn chips, uh, Ritz crackers, and Lay's potato chips also date to the Depression. So little wonder then that the Schechter brothers felt that they had to fight back when FDR's Blue Eagle tried to prohibit them from allowing their customers to pick their own chickens for slaughter, as they traditionally had. In 1935, the Schechters won their famous Supreme Court battle, which gutted the Blue Eagle and the National Recovery Administration that hatched it. The poor chicken boys lost the war against the Depression, though, as consumers learned that it was cheaper and easier to buy already processed chickens from one of the new supermarkets. 
Already suffering from the harms imposed by the New Deal, the Schechter saw their revenues plummet, forcing them to close their chicken business in 1936. Moreover, chopping up chickens before retail sale led to big dietary changes in the prosperous post-war period, as Americans increasingly ate just the naked breasts, and by 1964, deep-fried wings slathered in spicy and later sugary sauces, while eschewing the most nutritious part of the birds, their skins, gizzards, and livers. So Robert E. Wright says it's a stretch to blame today's obesity crisis on America's second Great Reset, the vast legal and socioeconomic changes ushered in by the Depression, New Deal, and World War II. But he does point out it certainly started Americans down the wrong dietary path, one leading to the infamous food pyramid and my plate, which pretty much just served the same junk food guidelines in a new way. Kind of some interesting historical context there, isn't it? By the way, I, I, was, uh, I was looking on a discussion board here just a few months ago, and someone was asking, hey, could you share your best uh, Great Depression recipes, maybe that uh, you know your family has handed down through the years? And I'm just going to share this one with you just because it's, it's so simple, and yet it's so good. And if you've not had an onion burger, and I think sometimes they'll call them an Oklahoma onion burger, um, if you're familiar with Smash Burger, where basically you start with a little ball of ground beef, you know, a quarter pound or a third pound of beef, and then put it onto a hot grill and smash it down, you know, as, as you go to cook it. Okay, it's, it's like that, only you're using some finely shredded onions. And, I, you know, it's not a terribly expensive thing, especially if you can find ground beef on sale. It is one of the tastiest treats in fact, I'm making myself hungry just talking about it. My apologies if you're listening to this and you haven't had a chance to, <laughs> to eat lunch or dinner. Oh, man, you're going to be hungry. But if you look up the recipe, Oklahoma Onion Burger, that is a Depression-era type of food. And I'm just going to put my endorsement out there for it is probably one of the best, tastiest, and, and, and comfortable foods. I, yeah, if you took a look at my waistline, you'd say, well, Brian, you seem to know a lot about comfort food. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because that, combined with my habit of eating until the pain goes away, has taught me a great deal. But I'm just going to leave you with this note. Uh, If you haven't tried a good onion burger, a good onion smash burger, you are missing out on one of the great treats in life. And it's nice to think that uh, it's actually a fairly frugal kind of dish. So, you know, if you want to treat your refined palate to something that's uh, exciting and new, that's one I would recommend. This is The Brian Hyde Show.